You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Genesis 2, 25, and we are in part two now of a biblical counseling mini-series. And last week, Pastor Craig spoke to us about moving from complaining to... Anyone? Contentment, that's right, that's right. And today we're going to be looking at moving from shame to honor. Shame to honor. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, I'd like to introduce you to three people. And here's the first person. Her name is Jane. And Jane uh, can't recall a time in her life where she didn't wrestle with feelings of insecurity. She's always felt insecure and she can't remember a time in her life when she didn't wrestle with feelings of worthlessness, even periods of hopelessness. Jane's childhood memories are so painful that she's never really shared them with anyone. And now as an adult with a family of her own and a husband who adores her, she still can't shake this sense that she's just somehow not good enough and that maybe her husband would have been better off marrying someone else. Then there's Justin. Justin's a very focused, hardworking young man. He's done well. He's got a good job. He's bought his first house. He has a nice car. And he would gladly talk to you about those things all day. He's part of a small group, and he always does his homework. He comes well prepared. Seems like he has half of the Bible memorized. But when it comes time for breakout time and sharing, he's real quiet. He's more than happy to pray for others. But when he's asked about what's going on in his life, He doesn't have much to say. I'm good, I'm good. Just praying, reading the Bible, you know, I'm good. But the truth is, is that Justin is in desperate need of help because sin has a grip on his heart and on his life, but he's too afraid of looking weak. He's too afraid of looking weak to bring himself to ask for help. And then there's Casey, and Casey just keeps everyone at a distance because after all, Casey knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He knows his past. Thankfully, no one at the church does. He wants to keep it that way. So you come on the weekend and you smile, you nod, you wave, you sit for service, you get out quickly, you go home, you stay safe. So what do Jane and Justin and Casey all have in common? Well, it's this. Shame. Shame. The experience of shame. Well, what is shame? Well, in his book, Shame Interrupted, Ed Welch tells us what shame is, and this book has been such a blessing to me. There's lots of shame interrupted in this message, but here's what he says about what shame is. He defines shame this way, that shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. Let me read that again. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or something associated with you and you feel exposed and humiliated. And if you are here this morning and you uh, struggle with shame at all like I do, like I think we all do, then get ready to hear 
what the Lord has to say to you today. Because the Lord is going to show us today the way out of shame. And we're going to begin by having a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And we're going to start at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 for this reason. Because in Genesis 2, 25, we see a world without shame. It's a world without shame. And why is it a world without shame? Here's why. Because it is a world without sin. And so what did that look like? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it tells us, speaking of Adam and Eve, here's what it says. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. They were not ashamed. Think of it. For Adam and Eve, the thought of clothing had never even entered their mind. They were totally innocent. They had, that, they had never even thought of clothing before. There was nothing to hide. They were naked and not ashamed. So how do we go from that world that had no shame into this world that is filled with shame? Well, that leads us right into our first point, which is this. The cause of shame, sin. The cause of shame, sin. Have a look at Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And we'll stop there. The first thing to notice out of this text is this. That Eve didn't just see the tree and sprint over to it and start eating the fruit. There was a gradual progression of sin that took place in her heart that finally led her to eating the fruit. And so let's begin with the first step in this progression of sin in the garden, which is this, unbelief. Unbelief. Have a look again at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Serpent here, of course, is Satan. Satan is in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he hates them. He, they, are, they are God's image bearers. He hates them. He wants to kill them. He wants to destroy them by tempting them to sin. And so he's going to use his primary weapon against them, which is this, lies. Lies and deception. Have a look back at verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here we see Satan deliberately misquoting God and essentially saying this to Eve. Eve, Eve, are you trying to tell me that God made all of these trees with all of this fruit and he said that you can't eat any of it? Is that what he said? Well, let's have a look at what God actually said. Chapter 2, verse 16. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 16. Here's what God actually said. 
and, and he's speaking to Adam here. Chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's what God actually said. So let's flip back to chapter 3, verse 2, and let's see how Eve responds to Satan's a deliberately misquoting God. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So first we see Satan misquoting God. Now we see Eve misquoting God as well. She sort of begins by correcting Satan, but at the same time now she is adding to the word of God. Let's see how Satan responds in verse 4. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So here we see Satan directly attacking Eve now, directly attacking her with a lie by directly contradicting what God has said and, sa and saying to her, you will not surely die. In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, Eve, God's a liar. He's a liar. I know he said that you'd die, but you won't die. Notice the silence, because here's what we don't hear. We don't hear Eve fighting back with the word of God. We don't hear Eve saying, God's not a liar. If he said I'll die if I eat that fruit, then that's exactly what will happen. We don't hear her saying that, and here's why. Because in this moment, Seeds of unbelief have been planted and they're starting to take root in her heart. Is God a liar? Is the serpent telling me the truth? Let me ask you, has anyone ever told you a lie about someone else that made you change the way you started to think about them? Because this happens all the time, unfortunately, in courtrooms. One example is a man named Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford served 30 years on death row in Alabama, 30 years, which means he was in isolation in a five-by-seven cell for 30 years on death row. He just released two years ago, 30 years, and here's why, because of one lie, deliberate lie, by one false witness who lied to the jury changed the way the jury thought about Glenn Ford. They're not thinking about him as a murderer. They convict him, and that cost him 30 years of his life because of one lie, because the jury started seeing him wrongly, and now this is exactly what Satan is doing with Eve. He's told Eve that God is a liar. She's believing him. She's now deceived, and she's seeing God wrongly, and it's about to cost her a lot more than 30 years. It's about to cost her literally everything. Satan continues his attack now by tempting Eve toward the next step in this progression of sin in the garden, which is this, uh, pride. Pride. Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5, Satan continues. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's what Satan is saying to Eve. Eve, your eyes are closed. 
You need to get your eyes opened. If you eat that fruit from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will finally see and you will see like God sees. You will see high and lofty things like good and evil. Eve, you need to get your eyes open so you can see like God and you can be like God. Eve, you can be your own God. He's tempting her toward pride, but will she take the bait? Have a look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she's hooked. He's got her. She's looking at the tree that God said, if you eat from that tree, you will die. She's looking at that tree and she's saying, that tree is good for food. And again, notice the progression of sin here. First, unbelief, doubting the character of God. God is a liar, giving rise to pride, wanting to be God, which is now giving rise to the next step in this progression of sin in the garden, which is this, lust. Lust. Eve is lusting after this fruit. She must have it. And why? Well, notice verse 6. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... This tree, this fruit, it looks so good to Eve. And why? Why? She's not hungry. She's in the Garden of Eden. There's no shortage of food here. Why does this fruit look so good? Well, verse 6 tells us the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Wise like who? Wise like God. Her lust for the fruit is rooted in pride. She wants to be her own God, therefore she must have this fruit. Look, at, look again at verse six. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also, notice, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was right there. Adam is right beside her. He's with her. And, and like, a, like a man standing beside his wife and watching her step off a cliff and not stopping her, he, he does nothing. And how long had he, had he been there for? Well, he'd been there long enough to watch his wife have a conversation with the devil. He had been there long enough to watch his wife sin against God by eating this fruit. And instead of stepping up and stepping in and standing on the word of God and saying, Stop, don't, don't sin against God in this way. What does he do? He chooses to sin. He rejects the word of God. And then he eats the fruit that his wife hands to him. And in this moment, everything changes. Everything changes. They don't know it yet, but they've just unleashed an avalanche of shame upon themselves. It's coming for them. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide because they would not stand on the word of God when Satan came with his lies. And so question, question, what do you do when Satan attacks you with his lies? What do you do? What do you do when Satan attacks you with his lies? Because if you're a Christian here, Satan is going to attack you with his lies. What do you do? What should we do? Well, thankfully, thankfully, God's word tells us. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 5 up on the screen. First, it begins with a warning. Look at this warning. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be on guard. Be on alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
What do we do? Resist him. How? Firm in your faith. The way we resist the lies of the devil is by standing upon the word of God. This is why it's so important for us to be storing up the word of God in our hearts. So when Satan comes to you and says, God's not enough for you. What a joke. God's not enough for you. You need to get that other thing over there. You get that other thing over there, it will complete you. We fight back by standing on the word of God. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have the Lord. I have everything I need. He's going to provide for me. I don't need that thing. I have the Lord. Or when Satan comes to you and he says, you think God loves you? Look at all this pain and suffering in your life. Look at this chaos. I think a loving God would allow that to happen. God doesn't love you. We stand upon the word of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Uh, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The wrath bearer for our sins. If we ever doubt the love of God, we just need to turn and look to the cross. Or when Satan comes to you and he says, you should be terrified right now. Your worst nightmares are about to happen. We stand upon the word of God, Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is how we fight against the lies of the devil, by standing upon the word of God, which Adam and Eve did not do. And now they have sown sin and are about to reap a harvest of shame and fear. Which leads us to our second point, which is this. That the cause of shame is sin, but the effect of shame is fear. The effect of shame is fear. Let's have a look at uh, verse 7. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Just moments ago, Adam and Eve are naked and not ashamed. There's, there's nothing to hide. They are totally innocent. But then in an instant, as soon as they sin, look what happens, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. As soon as they sinned, their eyes were opened to something they had never seen before, something they had never experienced before. It was this. It's evil. It's not evil that's far away. It's evil in them. Their eyes have been opened now to the experience of doing evil. Their eyes are open to the reality of their, their new life, which is this, a life of evil within them. Like a big bucket of water that is pure and clear, and then one drop of food coloring goes in and hits the water and disperses everywhere. Now sin has entered into their hearts and dispersed, and they are now corrupted. So what did that feel like for them? Well, verse 7 tells us, verse 7, and they knew that they were naked. They, they feel this guilt before God. They feel uh, unacceptable. They feel corrupt. They feel unclean on the inside. They are experiencing shame for the very first time. And then all they want to do, notice, is hide themselves from one another. 
their innocence, their perfect trust of one another, their perfect relationship, all at once is shattered on the ground. And so what do they do? Verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And in the same way that you can't hide an elephant behind a toothpick, you can't hide shame behind anything. You can't hide shame behind anything, especially before the eyes of the Lord who now enters the garden. Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And this moment, this moment is so sad. Think of it. God creating Adam out of the dust of the ground, reaching down, breathing life into Adam. He's now created this creature in his own image. He has perfect fellowship with Adam. He brings the animals to Adam. He, he names all the animals. He puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, creates Eve, brings Eve to Adam. And now they are rejoicing in one another. They're both rejoicing in the Lord together. He is their greatest delight, their greatest joy, except for right now. Everything has changed. Right now, he is their greatest fear. Right now, he is their absolute worst nightmare. And why? Because they've sinned against him. Their relationship with him is shattered. And in this moment, in his presence, all they know is shame. All they know is fear. But notice this. He's coming to them. They're Fellowship has been broken, and yet he's going to them. Why? To destroy them? Have a look at verse 9. Verse 9. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, of course, God knows exactly where Adam is. He's not asking for his physical location. He's asking this. Adam, why aren't you with me? Why aren't you with me, Adam? It's like a rebellious child that runs away from their parents. God is saying, Adam, why aren't you right here beside me? Why aren't you here? Look how Adam responds, verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now notice this. There's no confession of sin. There's no repentance there's only shame. There's only fear. So God asked him in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? By asking him this question, God is providing them with the perfect opportunity to come clean. It's the perfect opportunity just to confess and to ask for forgiveness. But what, what, what will he do? Will he ask for forgiveness? Will he confess? Well, let me ask you. When the Lord points out an area of sin in your life, how do you typically respond? Are you quick to confess? When was the last time that the Spirit of God brought conviction upon you about a specific area of sin in your life? And what was that area of sin that the Lord spoke to you about? Was God saying to you that you have lost your first love? Was God saying to you that your heart has been slowly drifting away from him? Was God saying to you that things need to change in your relationship with your spouse? 
or in your relationship with your children, or in your relationship with your parents. It was God saying that things need to change in that relationship with a friend or with that coworker. When was the last time that the Spirit of God brought conviction upon your heart about a certain area of sin in your life? Was it last week regarding complaining? Well, know this. When the Lord comes to us like he does with Adam and points out an area of sin in our lives, he's doing it because he loves us. He's calling us out of hiding. He's calling us out of darkness and into light because he loves us and he wants us to walk in freedom with him. He's calling us to return to him. So what should we do when the spirit of God brings conviction upon our hearts over an area of sin? Here's what we should do. Confess. Just confess. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this week for me was another week that I needed to go before the Lord and confess sin again. Yesterday was another day I needed to go before the Lord and confess sin again. This morning was another morning that I needed to go before the Lord and confess my sin again. How about you? What is the area of sin in your life that you need to take to the Lord and just confess? Because there is no healing in hiding. And there is no cleansing without confession. The cause of shame is sin. The effect of shame is fear. Now our third and final point is this. Praise the Lord. The death of shame is the gospel. The death of shame is the gospel. So God has provided for Adam this perfect opportunity to, to confess. What will he do? How will he respond? We'll look at verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So instead of grabbing hold of this opportunity and confessing his sin before the Lord, what does he do? He he shifts the blame. He tries to shift the blame. Who's he shifting the blame to? We'll have a look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, God, this is really your fault. If you wouldn't give me this woman to be with me, this never would have happened and, and it's her fault. If she wouldn't have given me this fruit, this never would have happened. It's like the thief who's caught red-handed, and he's like, yeah, I know I did it, but it's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. It's the way they raised me. No, it's your fault. Adam is not confessing his sin, he's not taking responsibility for his sin, he is blaming God. And instead of God just striking him down on the spot, he mercifully shifts his gaze over to Eve. And he addresses Eve. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we see Eve doing the same thing that Adam just did. She's shifting the blame. This is going from bad to worse. The hole is getting deeper and deeper and deeper for them. And then the next few verses, God lays out some consequences that now because of Adam, the ground will be cursed. Survival will be hard. And, and certainly we've reaped that. 
For Eve, she will now experience pain in childbirth. We've repped that as well. And now God turns his attention to Satan. Have a look at verse 12. Or sorry, uh, 15. Verse 15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's right here in this moment with Adam and Eve at their absolute worst that God proclaims the greatest message of all time because it's right here in verse 15 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed for the very first time. It's right here in this moment when fellowship with man and God has been shattered that God makes known his plan to one day make a way back to himself through Jesus Christ. And it's at this very first gospel proclamation that we see three things about Jesus Christ. Three glorious things. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing. Jesus Christ is our victory over Satan. Jesus Christ is our victory over Satan. Have a look again at verse 15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to Satan, Satan, he will bruise your head, Satan. And that word bruise there can also be translated crush. God says to Satan, he will crush your head. Who is he? He is none other than Jesus Christ, who will crush the head of Satan at the cross. Yes, Satan will bruise his heel. Yes, Jesus Christ will suffer horrifically, unimaginably on the cross. But yet, he will ultimately be victorious over Satan and crush his head by dying for the sins of his people, rising from the dead, that they would have eternal life. And now following this first gospel proclamation, we now see a second awesome thing about Jesus Christ. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, it's this, that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice and righteousness. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice and righteousness. Have a look down at verse 21. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now notice two things here. First, first, we see God rejecting the clothing that Adam and Eve had made for themselves. He rejects it. Let's get rid of that. But he also provides for them different clothing. He provides for them clothing made from the skins of an animal. So where'd those skins come from again? An animal, an animal, right? Which means that God himself sacrificed an animal and then covered Adam and Eve with its skins. Now why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, here's why. It's because of the message he just proclaimed. This is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of God's plan to make a way back to himself through Jesus Christ. It's a foreshadowing. It's a, a kind of a glimmer of the end of the story at the beginning of the story. And this is something that we're all very used to. 
This is like in every single movie we've ever watched, right? There's foreshadowing. My wife is amazing at this. We're like five minutes into a movie, and it's like there's some foreshadowing. She's like, oh, okay, here's how the story's going to end. I'm like, what? But, but this, is, this is a foreshadow. God covering Adam and Eve with animal skins. It's a, a foreshadowing. It's like a giant billboard. It's like a, a big signpost. It's like a huge, massive arrow pointing forward into the future to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of his people. But not only that, it's also a foreshadowing of God covering the nakedness of his people. And not with animal skins but with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking, what does that mean? What is the righteousness of Jesus Christ? How does God cover us? Well, to understand how God covers us, we must first understand this, that after the Garden of Eden, it is impossible for sinful man to enter back into fellowship with God on his own merit. It is impossible for sinful man to enter back into fellowship, God, based on his own merit. And here's why. Because for sinful human beings to enter back into fellowship with God, they must be perfect. And to be perfect requires two things. First, you must not have any sin whatsoever. Second, you must have perfect obedience. And for for us then, sinful human beings, that is an unfixable problem. Because we have sin and we don't have perfect obedience. And so what is God's solution? What is his glorious, awesome solution? Here it is. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on a cross to make full payment for our sins so that through faith in him, we can be cleansed. We can be forgiven. But not only that, not only that, God sent his son into the world to live a perfectly obedient life so that through faith in him, we could be clothed with that obedience. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah has to say about this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Why so much rejoicing and exalting? Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And if you are here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then know this. God has washed away your sins with his blood. You are now cleansed. But not only that, God has also clothed you in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. So God now looks upon you and sees what you're clothed with and says, that's glorious. That is glorious because you are clothed with the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, wearing it like a robe. Awesome. But why would God do this? Why would God cleanse us in this way, and why would he clothe us in this way? Well, here's why. Here's why. So that we could be brought back into fellowship with him. And that leads us to our third thing that we see about Jesus Christ right here in Genesis chapter 3. It's this, that Jesus Christ is our way back to God. Jesus Christ is our way back to God. Have a look at verse 22. 
Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and notice this, also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So for Adam and Eve now to reach out and eat from this other tree, the tree of life that they certainly would have been tempted to do, they would have been stuck in this state forever. Verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so often this moment of God sending Adam and Eve out of the garden is cast in a very negative light. I borrowed this picture from Harvest Kids. Here would be a typical kind of picture. So we see Eve, and she's looking back toward the garden. It's beautiful. And we see Adam. He's kind of looking into the wasteland of, of the world that they've been sent into. And it's a sad picture, isn't it? It's a sad, it's a, because it is. This is a very sad moment. But here's what we need to see also, that this is also a moment of amazing grace. And it's a moment of amazing grace for two reasons. First, first, God sending Adam and Eve out of the garden is a moment of amazing grace because he's protecting them from eating from the tree of life. It's amazing grace. Secondly, secondly, God sending Adam and Eve out of the garden is a moment of amazing grace because this is the way to the cross. The way to the cross is the way out of the garden. God's plan of salvation began as soon as they stepped foot out of the garden. From that moment, everything is heading toward the cross. And here's why. Because through the cross, God's people will have their sin and their shame taken away and replaced with honor. Let me say that again. Through the cross, God's people will have their sin and their shame taken away and replaced with honor. And maybe you're thinking, well, I understand the sin getting taken away, but how is my shame taken away? Well, well, hear this. Here's how. At the cross, not only did Jesus Christ take our sin upon himself, but he also took our shame upon himself because our sin and our shame are connected. They are chained together. Where our sin goes, the shame that's associated with that sin goes with it. So if you are here and you are in Jesus Christ, all of your sin was transferred uh, to Jesus on the cross, but so was all of your shame. Therefore, therefore, you bear the shame for that sin no more. Receive that today. Receive that today. If you are here in Jesus Christ, all of your sin has been transferred to Jesus on the cross along with all of your shame, and you bear the shame for that sin no more more. You are no longer united to sin and shame, but now through faith, you are united to Jesus Christ. And here's what that means. You are no longer united to shame. Now you are united to honor because you are united to the one with all honor. His name is Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
And to be united to Christ, there is no greater honor in the universe than this. There's no greater honor than to be united to the king of glory, the one with all honor. There's no greater honor than to be made a child of the king of the universe. Ephesians 1.5. There is no greater honor than to be made a co-heir of all things with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.17. There is no greater honor than to be made heavenly royalty. 1 Peter 2.9. There is no greater honor than this. There is no greater honor than to be united to the one who has all honor, the King of glory himself, Jesus Christ, and this, loved ones, is the death of shame. The death of shame is this. I'm united to him. This is the death of shame. I'm united to him. And this is why the gospel is the death of shame. Because through the gospel, I'm, now un- I'm no longer united to sin and shame. Now I am united to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here today, and the reason that you've been struggling so much with shame is because like Jane... Someone has sinned against you. Someone has sinned against you and you've been carrying this weight of shame with you because of someone else's sin. But hear the gospel over your life today. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been cleansed by his blood and you have been covered with his righteousness. And now in the eyes of the king of kings, you are whiter than snow. You have been made a child of God. You have been made a co-heir of all things with Jesus Christ. You have been made heavenly royalty. You have been given the greatest honor anyone can ever be given because by faith you have been united to the one who has all honor, the King of glory, Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're like Justin And maybe you're thinking, if I'm honest, I think the reason I feel so much shame is because I have such a proud heart. I just don't want anyone to see any of my weaknesses. And when when people see my weaknesses, I feel shame, and that's why I just hide all the time. Well, I can definitely relate to that. I can definitely relate to pride. Anyone else relate to pride in this room? Just me, just me, just me? All right, right, good, good, good. Because in our pride, we want to look good, don't we? In our pride, we don't want to look weak. In our pride, we don't want anyone to see our weaknesses. And here's why. Because pride feels shame in weakness. Pride feels shame in weakness because pride, pride wants to find something about ourselves that we can boast in. That's what pride wants to do. Pride wants to find worth in self. But listen, it's not about us and our worth. Hear this. It's not about us and our worth. It's about him and his worth. It's not about us and our glory. It's about him and his glory. It's about the one who has infinite worth condescending to unite us to himself through this glorious gospel. And when we begin to understand this, it humbles us which in turn kills pride, which in turn kills shame. 
But maybe you're here today and you're like Casey and you're thinking, the reason I feel shame is because all of my past, all of my sin, you don't know what I've done. Well, hear this. If you are in Jesus Christ, all of your sin and all of your shame was transferred to him on the cross and you bear it no more. You are no longer united to sin and shame. Now you are united to the one who has all honor, Jesus Christ, who has restored for all time, which was broken in the Garden of Eden by making a way for sinful people like us to be cleansed and to be clothed so we can enter back into fellowship with God. The cause of shame is sin. The effect of shame is fear. But praise the Lord. The death of shame is the gospel. Let's pray. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are here now and we're seeking to have some kind of appropriate response. What kind of a response is appropriate to a gospel that is so glorious? What kind of response is fitting to the King of glory? humbling himself to a cross so that we could be made clean, so that we could be covered and clothed, so that we could be brought back to God. How, how do we respond to such love? How can we respond to such mercy, to such grace? Now, there's only one way. It's with worship. It's with love. It's with adoration. Lord, you have stirred in our hearts today with your gospel, the beautiful gospel about a beautiful Savior. And now, Lord, get glory in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.